I always saw the value in economies of scale. If I could buy a single family home, one tenant, one roof, one, if they move out, then I have 100% vacancy. But if I could buy a larger property at the time for units and one tenant moved out, that was only 75% occupancy compared to 100. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, that makes sense. So I moved into one unit and that really got my hands dirty on that one. And so for about three years, I kind of stayed in that small multifamily space. Mm -hmm. And I went to one apartment meetup and my life changed, Matt. If you're an active real estate investor and you're looking to do larger deals, you're in the right place. We are gonna go and take the conceptual type of stuff that you listen to from other real estate podcasts and bring it down to the tactical, the nitty gritty, the actual actionable types of things that other real estate investors that went big did to grow their own real estate empire. You're listening to the Go Big Live podcast. I'm your host, Matt Druin. Hey, what is up everybody? I am Matt Druin. I'm the host of Go Big Live Real Estate Investors podcast. Today, I have Mr. Caleb Johnson on the show today. And uh, just a little bit about Caleb. He describes himself as a faith-rooted professional dedicated to investors and relationship building. This is evident in his podcast, From Trial to Triumph, where he sits down with top leaders to help you navigate all of the entrepreneurial tribulations. I had to practice that a couple of times. That's a lot of syllables. <laughs> By 25, Caleb has already amassed an impressive portfolio with a value of over $9 million through his company, Red Sea Capital Group. From multifamily to retail spaces, his acquisitions span multiple space in the Southwest and include 124 total units. You don't want to miss this opportunity to chat with Caleb live today, if you guys are in our Facebook group. But I want to give you a warm welcome, Caleb, and thank you so much for being on the show. Matt, thank you so much for having me. That was a mouthful, man. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed. That was great. Yeah, entrepreneurial tribulations. I'll have to count the with the how many syllables that was uh, back in the day. So, but it's tribulations are and entrepreneurial are definitely go hand in hand with each other. So, uh -huh. yeah. Well, I like to start off the show with all of my guests um, and asking a simple question: of you were born and now you're here. What happened in between? Wow. I'll give you the quick version of it. Gave my life to Christ when I was six. That's a big start of my journey. And I was raised in a Christian home, parents divorced when I was around 10. High school, I was a big gamer. I say that I was ranked 17th in the world in one video game. And so I say that just to show you how much of no life I had in high mm -hmm. school, but very antisocial, where I would walk probably a half mile out of my way. I was on a big campus in high school. Mm -hmm. I would walk so far out of my way just to avoid as many people as I could. And I got to the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and decided to change. And God really opened my eyes and helped me through that. And after probably when I was around 18 years old, really understood that I didn't want to work for someone else. Mm -hmm. And I saw that come into fruition and manifest itself with my mom who had surgery. Long story short, she took three months off of work to heal and recover. During that time, she was going to live off of her savings. And at the end of three months, though, Matt, she wasn't healed properly. Mm -hmm. So she made the tough decision. She had one of two choices to either stay home and recover, but she would probably prolong retiring a mm -hmm. couple of years because she was dipping into her savings more and more. Or she could go back to work and make an income, but maybe go through some pain, physical and, and mental stress. And... I saw her make the, the decision to go back to work and she would just come home in tears because mm -hmm. she was in so much physical pain. 
And so that really motivated and inspired me to want to help her financially. And at the same time, that showed me what a job could provide me. Now, I'm not saying all jobs are bad by any means. I think mm -hmm. they're great and we definitely need those professions. At the same time for me, I'm just not made that way. So that's when I started an entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and kind of started with real estate. And I've been doing that for about six years now. Excellent. So we're about talking about big deals here on a Go Big Live podcast. So I know we were talking to the Green Room a little bit earlier. What was that first big deal that you did? And also what was the, I guess, a seminal moment with where you may have been doing some smaller deals and then you're like, okay, now I can do this one. Like, where was that seminal moment that happened in terms of like, hey, I have to go big or maybe it happened by accident. An opportunity came your way. So tell us about that. I started in residential real estate with a house hack. So I lived in one unit of a fourplex, rented out the other three. I always saw the value in economies of scale. If I could buy a single family home, one tenant, one roof, one, if they move out, then I have 100% vacancy. Mm -hmm. But if I could buy a larger property at the time, four units, and one tenant moved out, that was only 75% occupancy compared to 100. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, that makes sense. So I moved into one unit and that really got my hands dirty on that one. And so for about three years, I kind of stayed in that small multifamily space. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to one apartment meetup and my life changed, Matt. So I really saw the potential and honestly, just how green. So let's say if you start in commercial, you're going to be green regardless of when you start, mm -hmm. no matter if you have 10 years of residential <laughs> experience or if you have six months of residential experience. So start sooner rather than later. And then probably after a year of that mindset shift for me is when I bought my first deal, which was in reality, it was a big deal for me at the time. But looking back, it was on the smaller side, but 16 units, we bought it for about $755,000 in Oklahoma City. So how did you find that deal? What was the origin of it? I started once I picked a market and I found what market I wanted to invest in, I went on LoopNet and Crexy mm -hmm. and I wrote down every broker's information on there that had an apartment complex listing, no matter if it was 200 units or if it was five units. I wanted to write down all their contact information. And then I called them up and I said, hey, this is my buy box, 10 to 40 units. And do you have anything available? And mm -hmm. so a lot of those was no. And so I just put them on my list to call them in two months. Mm -hmm. Now, after about a couple months of doing that is when one of the brokers said, hey, I don't have anything, but I know a seller who was trying to sell a couple years ago. It didn't go through. Let me mm -hmm. give him a buzz and see if we can make something happen. And so after about a week, she called me back and said, hey, I think here's some financial information on the deal. Mm -hmm. And that's how we found it. Excellent, Caleb. So I want to back up a little bit here. How did you identify that market as to the place you wanted to invest? Because we haven't really talked about that on the on the show. A lot of people started in their own backyard when they bought their first deal. So you mentioned a little bit about that. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. So it's kind of a funny story. And in the sense of I was working as a loan officer assistant, so in the finance side, and my boss had a lot of investor clients. And he said, hey, Caleb, I know you have some money. You're, you're going through this 1031 exchange and 
a lot of people, a lot of my investors are moving to Oklahoma. So mm -hmm. I think you should move there and, mm -hmm. or like move my investments and start looking there. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, if others are doing it, then I should probably look into it as well. And looking at, I'm in, I'm based out of Phoenix. So at the time we were, people were selling their apartment complexes for $350,000 per unit. And mm -hmm. let's say they're getting 1500 in rent. And in Oklahoma City, we could buy it for seventy, sixty thousand dollars per unit, and mm -hmm. rent was eight hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. And so it just you you were already beating that one percent rule. So that made sense. But now I don't look at a market like that. There's other <laughs> things that I look at, like projected forecasted projected job growth and job diversification, median household income, and other things like that. But for Oklahoma City, we kind of got lucky there and, and very blessed, but that's how we that's how we picked that one. Excellent. So the broker sent you over some financial information. How did you make heads or tails of this deal from a financial standpoint? Well, for about three months, I had looking I had been looking at deals, mm -hmm. and I knew what a bad deal was, and I saw all the purchase prices come in and the locations. So I kind of had a rough idea, you know, in this D, which is there's classes of neighborhoods. So A is cream of the crop, really great market. And B is okay. C is okay. Workforce housing. And then D is a war zone. Mm -hmm. So I saw prices for these properties in A's and D's. And I knew that this neighborhood was okay. It was mm -hmm. probably a C plus, And the purchase price was still very low. So mm -hmm. that was the first indicator for me that might've been a deal. Okay, great. So that was like your first litmus test on it. So you saw what the ask was. What did you what did you end up locking this thing up for? So we bought it for seven hundred and fifty five thousand, which was around forty seven thousand per door. All right. So you got this under contract. Now, okay, did you have all the money to take it down? Did you have to raise some capital? Did you bring in bank financing? Tell us about how you put the deal together from a financial stack standpoint. So for that three months, I had been building relationships with other vendors in the market lenders, property managers, and just other resources that, so I knew when I had a deal that I could move on it quickly. So I had gone through a couple lenders. So I had that lined up with a community bank that could give me very favorable terms. And I mentioned earlier that I was going through a 1031 exchange. So I decided since I had this property under contract, another opportunity came available. So I thought, well, I'll just 1031 into this other opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then I'll raise the 300 or so thousand dollars I needed to take down this 16 unit. And so that was my thought. And that's what we did. It was a lot harder than I thought to raise capital, especially <laughs> starting off my first deal. You know, I had been, I think whenever you're a younger investor or a newer investor and you're starting off, the best thing you can do is network, network, network. And so I had been building this network and this database of investors that I thought that I knew had money and that would be, I thought would be great investors for this deal. And mm -hmm. so I said, you know what? This is going to be a piece of cake. I <laughs> called all of them up and nobody wanted to invest. I mean, I called probably 50 to 100 people and no one wanted to invest. And so I was like, oh, well, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. Mm -hmm. Now we still close the deal, but that was kind of a, a great learning lesson for me. Yeah. So you had to raise about $300,000 for this deal then? That's right. Okay. So 50 to 100 and you had no close, you, you, you didn't have a closing rate. That was 0% closing rate on those asks. What do you think you did wrong 
to do that? Or was it just like, typically it's like, yeah, maybe get a couple of them. Yeah, it might've been my age at the time. And I'm still a younger investor. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know I don't act like it, but back then still being, I was probably 21 or 22. So not many people wanted to invest in someone on their first deal, a 16 unit apartment Mm -hmm. in this market that he's never invested before. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot of things kind of stacking against me. Yeah. But what ended up working was one of my business partners on another transaction introduced me to one of his investors and that investor led me, that investor led me to another investor and then someone I did know actually from church he decided to invest as well. So we got it done. It was just a lot of hustling and working hard to to get those investors in. Absolutely. So probably the issue was unfamiliar market. I mean, I started when I was 22 years old. I not only looked young, but I, you know, was young. I was inexperienced. But I'm wondering like how to for people that are starting out when they're young and you're and they, and the time to start is now, regardless of how old you are. That's right. How do you manage that as a younger investor in terms of getting in front of that? Because there's a kind of like a psychological thing too, that like, oh, I'm only 22 years old or I'm only 19 years old. I'm only 25 years old. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's two stories that I'll share quickly. And one is I just interviewed someone on my podcast who I was actually having this conversation with him. And he's a younger guy. He's probably two years older than I am. We've been in the business. He's probably been in it a little bit longer than I have. Mm -hmm. But I asked him, man, like, how did you do it? And I was telling him maybe it was my mindset that was messed up. And he said, man, I've raised, before I was 25 years old, I already raised $15 million. And I thought, well, there goes that excuse out the window. That's insane, (laughs) dude. That's awesome. He did have a different, he did have a different career background. He was in finance with a lot of these people that had money. I'm more in a a B-class neighborhood, just Mm -hmm. workforce housing, blue collar in my own sphere. Mm -hmm. So I think that helped him a lot. But at the same time, that mindset of, I'm only 25 or 22 or 21. Who's going to give me money? Now, this guy, he's saying he's 25 years old and he's already raised $15 million. Now, the second story, which is kind of a more actionable thing that younger people can take to raise capital, is a dress and attire. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm blessed with more of a, I'm an old soul. And so (laughs) I thought it was more good, but I was probably a couple months ago, actually, the first time I met this investor, he I met him in shorts and a t-shirt, very loose casual. And it was at a real estate meetup. And a couple months later, I decided to change my attire so that now I wear button downs, pants, slacks whenever I go out, dress shoes, mm-hmm. and I look the part. That's, I think, part of what our role is. And he made an offhand comment. I don't even think he meant to say it, but he said, yeah, the first time I met you, you were wearing shorts. And we were talking about that and it was like, wow, that was such an impression to him. Mm -hmm. I'm still in this business. I've already done six transactions. You know, Mm -hmm. I own X amount of dollars in real estate, very blessed. And so even with that background, me wearing shorts was a turnoff, or at least this investor noticed that. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm dressing different, I'm getting a different result. So I think your appearance, dressing a certain way, keeping yourself a certain way, hygiene is very important. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I mean, when I first started in real estate, I was a broker or an agent, I would say, 
And my dad made me wear a suit every single day. I hated that damn thing. Mm -hmm. But it definitely, there was a reason behind it. And uh, because especially like, you know, most of the people that invest with us are, I'd say between their 50s, between 50s and 70 years old. And when you have to think about when those people in the environment that they grew up in, in terms of what is considered like acceptable or socially acceptable, me and myself, I mean, I'm one that just loves to wear a t-shirt and jeans, like nothing, nothing more than that. And I think the expectation for our generation is different, but you have to know your audience and really be able to read the room in terms of that. And most of those people that had that disposable type of like liquid assets to invest with you in a deal usually are probably took them a while to accumulate that. And therefore they grew up in a different environment than you did. So I think you hit the nail right on the head right there. Yeah, that's spot on, man. Yeah, I've seen that. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you had to raise 300,000, you got it to the commitments on it. How many investors did you have to raise, uh, raise that from? Three investors. So they probably invested around 90,000 each. Okay. So 90,000 each. All right. And how did you structure the deal with, with them? Was it just a straight up fixed rate of return for that? Or did you have some type of equity split? Tell us about that. It was an 86. So the limited partners got 86% and I got 14%. Now in the grand scheme of things, let's say you do a bigger deal and you only own 3%, but it's a hundred million or a $10 million transaction. You have a lot bigger piece of the pie like mm -hmm. monetarily wise. Yeah. Now with this deal, 14% is a lot more than 3%, but I think I gave a little bit too much away. And I had an investor tell me who is on the GP side and he said, Caleb, I would not do only do an 80-20 split for my best friend. And mm -hmm. so if someone wants less than that, then it's a waste of your time because you're the one that's going to be putting all this work in. So I, that's how I struck an 86-14 split and I had a 2% asset management fee. And it was structured as a joint venture. So mm -hmm. that means that all of the investors have to have some kind of active participation, which mm -hmm. they do. We have plumbers on there and other investors, agents. One of them is actually a broker. So they all add to the team. And then mm -hmm. we have quarterly calls to, to make sure we're just keeping up with the property. Okay. So let's get a little bit granular here. I mean, you got community bank financing. This isn't what wasn't a Fannie Freddie agency debt deal or anything like that. So there was somebody or somebodies that had to sign on those loan documents. So tell me about that, because I'm curious about that. Yeah, all four of us did. And it kind of helped they needed to with the net worth mm -hmm. because for that loan requirement, I don't remember exactly what it was, but we ended up needing everybody to sign on the note. Okay. And your investors were okay with that. That's a they, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely advantageous because a lot of our investors are like, hey, I'd probably kill you if if you lost my money, but I don't want to be you know I want to be limited to my investment capital in this. I don't want to have additional uh, liability above that. So, how did you get them to be cool with that, or were they just sort of like they understood the business and didn't have that sort of hesitation? I was thinking about that while you said it, and part of it might have been how I structure or how I presented that to them. Just, and I don't think I knew what I was doing, but I just <laughs> kind of said it nonchalantly and said, Hey, if you want in on the deal, you're going to have to sign the note. Mm -hmm. And we had already gone through and we had already spent so much time with phone calls back and forth and making sure all the investors were comfortable and understood the deal. That aspect of it wasn't a big deal. And all of the investors, they've been investing for at least two of them have been investing for 20 years. 
And then the third person, he really just follows the suit of the other guy because he's trusted him long enough and they've known each other for 20 some years. So if that one investor does something, the other will just kind of follow suit. So excellent. So Caleb, we have a few minutes left here, the recorded version of the podcast. So take me from here on out, kind of like from that point in time, how you brought this deal full full circle. We still own it today. And we have monthly management calls to make sure everything is running smoothly mm-hmm. and it's cash flowing. So it's cash flowing and we're, yeah, we're excited to grow in that market still. And we still own it today. So was the business plan to push the value and refi- and refinance it? What was the business plan? Was it a value add deal? Or was this sort of just more of kind of like a stabilized coupon clipper? It was a value add deal. So rents going in were probably around $535 and market rent is $725. And that's what we're getting today with Mm -hmm. renewals being, I think we have a renewal for like $805. So definitely value add play. We were going to inject about $200,000, $215,000 to renovate the units, have some money set aside for a little foundation problem, Mm -hmm. the roof if we needed it. And we had 18 months of interest only payments which meant we had 18 months to renovate the property and spend that CapEx capital. So, and we've probably renovated, I think, eight of those units today. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably make, do make readies as needed, whatever we really need to, we want to make sure the property is a safe property and the residents want to live there. And so we'll invest into a, a unit to make that rent ready, mm-hmm. really however much we need to. So I don't want to go ahead and have to spend $12,000 in a unit. If I can still get seven twenty-five dollars and spend five grand, then mm-hmm. that's what we'll do. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think you might, I mean, what's the long-term plan with this is, or is it to be determined? Hey, maybe we'll sell it one day or we're going to, our goal is to refinance and pull some cash out at this, at this point in time in the future. So we bought it in February of 22, 2022, mm-hmm. and we tried to sell it towards the back end. Mm-hmm. of 2022, just uh, because the market was going crazy. And if we could get the price that would make it worth it to us, mm-hmm. then why not? And yeah. we've only invested eight months, 12 months into this deal. So that was a plan and we didn't get the price that we wanted. Mm-hmm. So our debt is structured. So we have five years until the balloon happens. So maybe refinance it year four, sell it year four, but we'll see what happens, but we're okay holding it now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So being as a, you know that most of the people that listen to the show are experienced investors that are trying to swim upstream or want to swim upstream into larger commercial deals, whether it be multifamily or commercial office, industrial retail, and that sort of thing. What would your parting advice be for them in making that jump to go big? I would say, yeah, Matt, that's such a great question. I'd say network and be humble. You know, be open to learn, and it's going to take a long time. So it took me six, six to 10 months to really learn the commercial business. So if you're making that transition, dive into free content like podcasts, like Matt's or other apartment podcasts and free resources. So try to learn as much as you can and network with people that you can add value to and that can give you a piece of the deal. Excellent. Caleb, thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to jump into our live Q&A and our Facebook group. But if you are listening right now to podcast to in podcast land, Apple, 
podcast or Spotify or whatnot, and you want to give on get in on the live action Q&A with our esteemed guests like Caleb, like Gina Barbaro, Reed Goosens, Brian Burke, Stephen Libman, the list goes on. You got to join our Facebook group. Look it up. It is Go Big Live Real Estate Investors Group. It's a private group. Request to, to get in and just fill out the little information in there. I'll let you into the group so you can get uh, access to live Q&A. So for the meantime, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we'll be signing out. I appreciate it, Matt.